you have a Bible, let's open it up to Mark chapter 10. We're going to be in Mark 10, verse 35. And like I said earlier, this is one of my favorite, favorite passages in all of the Scriptures. So, if you will, please stand, and I will read God's Word. We're going to be in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 35. This is God's Word for God's people. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him, that is Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this great text. This great text that points to our servant master, our servant king, the risen Lord Jesus who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And God, I pray as we unpacked unpack this text as we see the implications of it in our lives. Lord, I ask that you would get the glory, that we would get the joy, and Lord, that we would know you more intimately as a result of our time in your word here together today. God, I do thank you for the the work in the Czech Republic, the work that we get to partner in the gospel with, God, we pray for Metro Church as they gather even here today. We ask that you would encourage their hearts, that you would strengthen them in the faith, that they would be rooted and established in the gospel. And Lord, that their witness to the world around them would shine brightly, that it would be loud, that it would be clear, that there is a God in heaven who cares for his people, who died for his people. Lord, we do pray for those who are going over there. We pray for Rich. We pray for Beck. We pray for Jack and Melinda and Justin. God, we ask just that you would do not only the work to raise the funds, but that you would be preparing them for what you have. God, I pray that you would protect them from the evil one, protect them from spiritual warfare. And God, that you would use them in the lives of these Czech people for the short time that they have over there. And God, that you would continue to be forming a church for the sake of your name in a country and in a region of the world that is so godless and that needs you so badly. So Lord, thanks for the opportunity that we can be a part of it. And I pray just that we would get great joy from it. So we pray it all 
In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Okay, so many of you know that I love the sport of hockey. It's almost like I can't preach a sermon without talking about hockey. (laughs) And one of my favorite parts about hockey is playoff hockey. So the Colorado Avalanche won the Stanley Cup. I know most of you were glued to your TVs. Some of you even went to some of the games, which is crazy. But uh, we actually have another team here in Colorado that's been pretty successful. How many of you have been to a Colorado Eagles game? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. So the Colorado Eagles, they are a minor league affiliate of the Avalanche. And they have had a successful team for over 15 years now, almost going on 20. And uh, a couple years ago, my wife and I, we went to a playoff game of the Colorado Eagles. Now, it was the semifinals, and it was game seven. So if the Eagles win, they would advance to the finals. And oh my gosh, this was an intense game. It was the third period. The Eagles were down three to one. They were playing the Fort Wayne Comets. And they were out playing the Comets, but they got a couple of lucky goals, good bounces. And it's just like, come on, guys, we got this. So three to one in the third period with about 10 minutes left. A friend of mine on the team got the primary assist on a goal, and it was 3-2. to two. And you could just feel the excitement in the building. If you've been to the Budweiser Event Center, the arena that they play, it's intimate. There's about 7,000 people that fit in there, and it was beginning to bubble. And then with about three minutes left, they scored the tying goal, and I thought the roof was going to pop off of that building. It was so loud. 7,000 people screaming their face off. And Michelle and I were talking with the people next to us. We don't even know them, but it's like, we got this. This game is ours. We can do this. But the interesting thing is that none of us were playing in the game. (laughs) None of us were taking the shots. None of us were taking the hits, blocking the shots, scoring the goals. But we all felt like we were a part of the team that day. It was one of the great things about sports. So time expires, and it goes to overtime, and overtime is just nuts, back and forth. You're on the edge of your seat. Anytime the Eagles were in their defensive zone, you're just like, oh gosh, don't let them score. And then they would push the puck up the ice, and you could just hear the whole arena just get so loud. And then they scored with 10 minutes into overtime, and it just goes nuts. And we're all celebrating. All the the team pours onto the ice, and if there weren't boards there, all of the fans would have poured on the ice too. And it was, it was awesome. It was incredible. And so I was talking to Michelle about this game this week. I said, hey, what do you remember about that game? And she was like, I'll give you one word. Noise. <laughs> and it was so loud. It was so loud in there. But the one word that I would give you guys to describe that experience is transcendence transcendence. Now, a definition of that is the state of being beyond and outside the ordinary range of human experience. And that game was not any old hockey game. You see, I have been to hundreds of hockey games. Many, many of those are Eagles games. And that game was unlike any other game that I had ever been to. That game was anything but ordinary. It was amazing. It was incredible. 
And it is transcendent experiences like this that fuel my faith for God. Because I really believe that God has designed us to transcend. God has hardwired us to live for something bigger than the everyday, mundane, just existing. We were made for more. We were made for greatness. We were made for glory. Now, we live in a day and age where lots of people try to fulfill their dreams by trying their hand at a number of different things. People are constantly trying to reach the pinnacle of whether it's sports or their career or academics. And many people do reach the top. They do get the PhD. They do win the Stanley Cup. They do become CEO of whatever. But oftentimes, once that pinnacle is reached, there's a feeling of emptiness that follows. There's a feeling of, that's it. There's got to be more. And I think God has designed us to experience the more, the better. And our passage this morning speaks to that human condition, that feeling of, that's it? Speaks to this problem. And I think the way of our Master, the way of Jesus, is the solution to transcend everyday life and to live for the glory that we all crave. And so what is it? Well, it's service. It's service. And this is the great paradox of the Christian life. If you want to be great, you give your life to other people. If you want to be first, you're last. If you want to experience true fulfillment, you deny yourself. And that's because Jesus has served us with his life, and we worship him by serving one another and serving together in the world. Now, we are in a sermon series that is highlighting our life groups. And we are going through our four core values of our life groups, which are gospel growth, fellowship, service, and mission. And they're not kind of these nice, neat, little uh, individual silos values, but they, they blend together. They're like fruit that you see as a result of a life group that lives life together and grows in the gospel. And when they're all blended together, it's like the best smoothie you've ever tasted in your life. And so life groups, they are an important rhythm of the crossing because I believe it is the most concentrated context that we live out our faith. It's not the only context, but I think it is the most concentrated context. And we are smaller groups of people centered on the gospel, living to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And our life groups are designed to transcend the mundane and to live for the glory of God as we serve one another and as we serve in the world. So today's sermon is going to be a little different. I've got a couple testimonies for us, which you look forward to. I've got three points for us. I always have three points, just like I always mention something about hockey. should probably work on that. But our first point is going to be our servant master. We're going to look at Jesus' model as our motivation to serve. Our second point is going to be our service to one another. And our third point is going to be service together in the world. Now, my first point it is very big. These are not nice and neat courses that follow. But uh, our main course is going to be here in the first point, And then we're going to have dessert. And then we'll have a little bit of an appetizer. I'll explain that later. So point number one, our servant master. So we find ourselves here in Mark chapter 10. We are in the middle of Mark's gospel. 
And Jesus is with His disciples, and they are on their way up to Jerusalem. His pending death is right before Him. In the next chapter of Mark's Gospel is the triumphal entry. And so James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, the brothers, the sons of thunder, they come to Jesus, and they make Him this request. And they've been walking with Him for three years. They know this guy. They know He's the real deal. They believe that He is the Messiah. They've heard His teaching. They've seen His signs. And then they make this request. They said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And Jesus' response here, perhaps with a raised eyebrow, What do you want me to do for you, bros? James and John. And they said, Well, we want you to grant us to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left in glory. And taken at face value here, you know, maybe we can give James and John a little bit of credit. They're expressing faith in Jesus. They're expressing Him as the Messiah who will sit on the throne of honor, of prestige, of glory. And they believe that Jesus can grant their request. He's the one that can allow them to sit in these places of prominence next to Him. But I don't think that's really what's going on here. I think something deeper is going on in the, James, in the heart of James and John. You see, they are seeking these positions of honor. And I'll remind you that James and John, they are part of the inner three of Jesus' disciples. Peter is along with James and John. And they were invited up to the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw Jesus in His glory. And now... They want a prominent place next to him. And it just makes me think, like, what was Peter thinking? <laughs> like, what about Peter? It's like, sorry, Peter, there's only two seats. And whether it was James or John who initiated the idea and then they both went together with him, it's like, sorry, you're the odd man out. There's only two seats, Peter. Well, we'll see his response here in a moment. And so they're setting their sights on being the greatest, on being first. And second, and their ambition is to be recognized by everyone else. And I would say that this is selfish ambition. And this is sinful, earthly ambition in their request to Jesus. So, how's Jesus respond? I think it's pretty telling that He's not harsh with them. He's not critical with them. That He doesn't strike a, a mean rebuke. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you to be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to go through? He uses this as a teachable moment. He's using metaphors here. To drink the cup that Jesus is going to drink, it's the cup of God's wrath. We see this in Psalm 75, verse 8. He says, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed. He pours out from it. And all the wicked on the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. This type of cup or experience that Jesus is talking about is drinking of the cup of God's wrath that will be poured out on sinners. Baptism. What's he talking about here? This is not the baptism where the clouds spread apart and the Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove. This is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. No, that's not what He's talking about. Jesus is talking about this idea of being overwhelmed 
like a flood, being immersed. Another Psalm 88, verse 7, Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Jesus is saying, this is my portion, James and John. The most unfavorable experience that ever will be experienced by any human. Ever has or ever will. Can you hang, James and John? (laughs) And they say, yeah, Jesus, we are able. And I'm just like these guys. What is going on? Well, in verse 39, Jesus confirms that they will drink it. And they will be baptized with the same baptism. And it's a prophetic future of James who's going to be martyred as we see in Acts chapter 12. And it's also a prophetic future of John who at the end of his life, he's exiled to the island of Patmos as we see in Revelation chapter 1. And in verse 40, Jesus knows what is being requested, but you see His humility. He says, this is not mine to grant. I cannot do this. This has been prepared in advance by my Father. We see God the Son submitting to God the Father. And the plan of redemption that was set before the foundation of the world is beginning to take place, beginning to shape up. And this is where the story gets really interesting. Because the other disciples, the ten, they catch wind of James and John's request. And they become indignant. Now that means they're, they're angry. Uh, pre-fired up angry. Um, now they could be angry at James and John for the absurdity or the stupidity of the request here. But I don't think that's what's going on. I think you begin to see the state of the other ten's hearts. James and John wanted these positions of prominence, these places of preeminence, and the ten don't like it. They take it personal. They see it as a plot against them. And we see that they are the ones that wanted those positions of prominence, the glory as well. And I'm reading through Lord of the Rings right now, and I just finished Fellowship of the Ring, and you begin to see in that story the power that the ring that Frodo is carrying has over other people. You see it in The Hobbit a little bit with Gollum and even Bilbo. And then you see it grow and manifest itself at the end of the Fellowship of the Ring with Boromir. You see this power that's lusted after. And I think that's what's going on here with the tent. They want the prestige. They want the authority. The longing of their hearts is not much different from the brothers James and John. And how easy it is to condemn others of what we often excuse in ourselves. So as I was studying it this week, I tried to put myself in this situation. Like, What would it be like to be amongst the ten and amongst James and John, the twelve? Seeing Jesus' response here is very striking. He's not angry. He's not frustrated. He's not, guys, get it together. Like, I'm about to go to my death and you guys don't have it figured out. No. It's none of that. He's gentle with His disciples. 
He understands their lack of knowledge, but He also understands their sin. And He's the tender shepherd who came to die for sinners. Who cares for His sheep. And we see in verse 42, He calls them over. And He uses it as a teachable moment. And He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. He's given a little jab to the Roman leaders of the day, those who are considered rulers. But they lord it over them. They make sure to demonstrate their authority to everyone else, causing folks to believe that they have their subjects' best interests at heart. But everybody knows that it's a facade. Everybody knows that it's not true because they lord that authority over them. And Jesus says, but you gentlemen, that's not how it is to be among you. If you want to be great, you become a servant. If you want to be first, you're a slave of all. And this is the paradox of the Christian life, as I mentioned in the introduction. A paradox, it, it doesn't make sense. The logic doesn't follow. It's almost like it contradicts itself. But this is the way of the Christian life, that greatness is obtained by self-giving, outpouring oneself in service to others. Now here in our passage, Jesus uses two words that mark our identity. Those words are servant and slave. They are two different words in the Greek, but used in this context, I believe they're synonyms. They describe identity and function. And most of us, we are okay with the word servant. It's like, oh yeah, that's my identity. I'm a servant. But as soon as we start throwing around that slave language, we, we get uneasy. We, we bristle a little bit. And rightly so, because of the racial-based slavery that was marked by a lack of freedom and unwilling service and cruel treatment that not only marked our country, but England and a lot of Western Europe in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, that type of slavery is wrong and is to be condemned. But the Bible describes slavery very differently. The Bible actually describes every single person as a slave. Passages like Romans chapter 6 talk about us being enslaved to sin. That sin is our master. But for those who come to Christ, those who die to themselves, those who are born again, we have a different master. We have been set free. But we continue to be slaves. Now, how is that possible? Well, slavery has this direct correlation to ownership, and it all depends on who is the master. For those who are apart from Jesus, sin is their master. For those who come to Jesus and find themselves hidden in Him, He is our master. Romans 6.22 says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. One commentator on this passage said, Christian paradox is that freedom leads to slavery. And slavery leads to freedom. As soon as people are set free through Christ from slavery to sin, they enter a new, permanent slavery to Christ. And speaking of the new Master, the Lord Jesus, unlike sin, Christ is the perfect Master. 
But the contrast cannot be overstated because it cannot be any starker. You see, sin, it's cruel. Sin is the most unjust of all masters, but Christ is the most loving and the most merciful master. You see, sin's burden is heavy and loathsome. Christ's yoke is easy and His burden is light. Sin traps us as slaves in darkness and in death, but Christ brings us to light in life to all those who have been made alive together with Him. Sin diverts, deceives, and destroys. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Insofar as slavery to sin consists of every hateful, harmful, dreadful, and despicable thing, so slavery to Christ entails everything good, glorious, joyous, and right. This is our identity as followers of Jesus. We are slaves. We are His slaves. And He is a good Master. One that we call Lord. And we live out this identity as we grow in the Gospel. We increase our understanding of that identity and what He has accomplished for us as we serve, as we lay down our lives. And we follow that model of Jesus. Look with me again at verse 45. This is the climax of our passage. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. Briefly, the Son of Man. This is Jesus' favorite designation that He would give Himself. And it's echoes from Daniel chapter 7. He is the humble servant who came to forgive common sinners. He was God who became man. He is the suffering servant whose atoning death and resurrection would redeem His people. This is His identity. He actually became a slave for you and for me. He came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom. Now, a ransom is something, a price that would pay, be paid to release a slave. The price that was paid, the cost, was His death on the cross. His death in your place, His death in my place. Substitutionary atonement is what we call this. In the place of you and me, for the benefit of us, He went to the cross. He suffered. More than that, He died. And He was raised. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, I came to give my life for you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that He gave His life for you? We see that His life was given as a ransom for many. I just want to highlight this real briefly. It's not for a few. It's not for all. But it's for many. And those are the blood-bought people of God. This is the church. These are Jesus' people who He died for. It's not a universal salvation, but rather it is by those who have been born again by the grace of God. Those who recognize their sin and turn from it and put their faith, put their trust in Jesus. And so Jesus' teachable moment for His disciples in our passage is a continual teachable moment for us here today. His disciples... We are called to give our lives as He has given His life. Now, when we give our lives, it doesn't add anything to our salvation. 
The ransom was paid once and for all, but we do it in response to worshiping our Master, worshiping our King. And so our lives, they are to be marked by self-giving service to others. And we live that out as slaves of Jesus in our service to one another. That's the main course. Point number two, our service to one another. Guys, time and time again, I am amazed by the servants that we have in our church. Just yesterday, I was preparing this sermon and I roll up at 6.45 a.m. here at the building to work on it and there's already somebody here serving. And then more people came and more people came and then a life group came. People are out there working machines on the playground. People are inside cleaning buildings, running electrical. It's just like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And coming out of a COVID season about two years ago, our serving muscles, they were atrophied. They hadn't been worked out for a while. It wasn't just us, but it was all churches. So our pastoral team, we got to work. We prayed and we prayed and we prayed. And alongside other servants, by God's grace, two years later, our muscles, I think, are stronger than ever. We have four deacons who lead a team of servants alongside them. Joel Saller oversees our facilities, and he's got a team of people with a specific skill set who are eager to help with the needs, the physical needs around this building. Mackenzie Grauberger, she's our Crossing Kids coordinator, and this is the biggest volunteer arm of our entire church. Many of you serve in children's week in and week out, and it is our joy on those fifth Sundays to give you a little break. <laughs> Albert Chen, he's with our finances, and he's a great counselor with that. And Tyler Dell, he oversees our grounds and our media. But beyond them, we have a church full of servants. I think of our student ministry that is beginning to grow. And people that are like, yeah, I want to be a part of that. Our grounds crew, Cole and Jack and the worship team, even Nathan Bush. It's like he's up here every week, whether he's slapping the bass or beating the drums. We have our serve squad preparing communion and coffee every week. We've got Eric Bros, who owns a sprinkler service, and he just donates so much, not just equipment, but time, his employees. Our TLC women's ministry team, our care team, our life group leaders, our co-leaders who serve in the Word and caring and shepherding for people. Lindsay and Jess making this place feel good. And I could go on and on and on, and I will. We have this playground that's being built. We have meals that are being shared and provided for people. We have people who call people throughout the week just to catch up just to give words of encouragement. We have text messages that are constantly being shared, knowing that people are thinking for them, praying for them. We have words of truth that are being shared with prayer and tactfulness. We have people who are fighting for other people's marriages. We have the willingness of a church to say, yes, I want to help out. Guys, this is so encouraging. And I would say we are exemplary at this. It's amazing. But I think it is a good diagnostic for all of us to occasionally ask, why are we doing this? Why are we serving? Why do you do what you do? 
And I hope and pray that it is from your growth in the gospel. That you serve Jesus because he has served you. And that he is our good and gracious master. We're not entitled to anything from God. And we're not accruing any sort of favor with him. We serve because we've been set free. And we are slaves to him. Galatians 5.13 says, You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. And serving one another is happening constantly across our entire church body. But this sermon series, it's about life groups. And the service that I've seen that's the most profound over the years in our church is the service that happens within the context of life groups. It's most dynamic, It's the most generous, and it's often spontaneous. So speaking of spontaneous, I'm going to call Rita Santini up here, and she's got a story of a little guy named Caden and how God used them and their life group to save this little guy's life. Come on up. So I um, wrote this down. I have like five minutes, and <laughs> that's why it's written down, because anyone who knows me, I can't do anything in five minutes. So I'm going to try to stick within that, and hopefully I don't have an emotional breakdown, but um, it's just my privilege, privilege to be able to speak on Caden. Do we have a picture up yet? No. Um, and he is my son from another mother and another father, and um, I would say, I can't even look at Leslie, <laughs> Lisa over there, so um, I would say that God did an amazing work of saving this child's life through, I mean, our family was at the front lines, but I tell you what, our life group locked arms with us, and there's no way we would have been able to do anything to save this child without them. And not only that, that extended out to the crossing, and all of you and those that came alongside. I'm just curious to know, like, how many of you remember Kaden? It seems such a small group, but um, so significant. Um, and I, I just want to start by saying one thing, that there is a cost in serving others, um, but there is also a priceless worth and value that comes from the result of serving. Um, in, in our life group, um, there was a gal, Leslie Fawcett, and I'm going to talk about people that some of you guys don't know. They've moved on. They've, you know moved everywhere for jobs and whatever. So some of these people, you won't know their names, but they were significant to the crossing. Um, So Leslie Fawcett was a gal who I discipled through college. She was a part of our church, um, was part of our life group. She was a bank, um, someone who opened accounts at a bank. And um, this young woman, Ashley, and her son, Caden, who was about 10 months old, walked in. And Ashley tried to set up an account or cash a check that was fraudulent. Um, It was a fake check. And Leslie recognized that pretty quickly. And then um, she could have done a lot of different things at that point. But what she chose to do was to start to ask some questions because she could tell that there was something going on with this young woman and this child. And as she asked questions, she realized that this gal was homeless. Um, They had nothing. They had nothing to eat. They had literally nothing. She had a stroller, her child, and what she had on her back. 
And of course, Leslie, being a good steward, basically said, all right. She gave her my number and she goes, there's this Galerita and she's going to help you. <laughs> and so I'm at home with the flu and she calls me and she's like, just so you know, you're going to get this call and it's going to be this gal, and here's the situation. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, what am I going to do? Maybe she won't call, you know. <laughs> but surely she called very quickly. And um, after talking with her in a short period of time, I knew that um, we were going to have to probably take some action, and we were going to be bringing this young woman, this homeless young woman, and her child into our home. But before we did that, we sat down as a family, because um, that's how we roll in the Santinis. We make a decision, we all make a decision. So we sat down um, at the dinner table, and we just said, here's the deal. Here's the situation. Um, if we bring this family in, um, you guys are going to sacrifice, and there's going to be cost. Someone's given up their room. Um, we're going to have strangers in the house. You're going to lose some privacy. It's going to be really awkward. There's going to be a lot of things that are going to happen. And are you ready for that to be your every day in your home? And our son, JT, and I'm not going to say this perfectly because I don't remember exactly what he said, but it was something along these lines. He said, um, and if you know my son JT, he was up here for, he is not serious ever. Like, and so this was this moment where we were like, oh my gosh, you know, like, but he says, you have taught us what it is to be a follower of Christ. And if we believe in the gospel, and if we see there are needs, you have to bring them home. Who else is going to help them? And um, so the next step was after I met with her and there were some rules I laid down, obviously, um, for our home, um, to protect our home. And I sent a message primarily to our life group ladies. And then that turned into like a wave of reaching out to the women in the crossing. And literally within hours, I was like, look, I'm bringing in a kid. I haven't had a baby in my house in a while. We have nothing. Nothing's childproof. We don't, I have nothing. I don't know where this kid's going to sleep. <laughs> like, what's happening? And within a really short period of time, I had a house full of women in my home that were bringing, like, I think I had supplies for a year for this family. And not only that, meals and whatever. And then, as Ashley was already there with Caden, they didn't just drop and leave. They stayed, they engaged, they loved Ashley, they had conversations with her, they played with Caden, who at that time, um, he had a lot of neglect, um, emotional and social delays, emotional abuse. Um, he was odd in the fact like he wouldn't look you in the eye, he wouldn't respond normally, he didn't cry if he was hurt, he didn't laugh. He didn't talk to you. It was a hard situation, but this little boy had some issues. But these women engaged with everything that they had. And Ashley, who had literally been raised in the system, um, grew up through foster care, home to home, never adopted. This was the first time, and she sat and cried and talked to me afterward, the first time she'd ever experienced anything like this. Like this. Um, or this kind of a love that was just showered onto her. Um, and 
also the faucets, to talk about the faucets, this is just to tell you how beyond they went. Um, Tyler, he's like a master mechanic, and he found a vehicle that was just donated. He fixed it up and even provided a vehicle for her so that she could find a job and transport her and Caden. And then quickly the reality of the situation kind of came to play where we realized that Ashley had um, a pretty severe drug addiction. She was no longer allowed to be in our home, but we still supported um, her. Um, and I will tell you, Leslie Lease and Leslie Fawcett and Cecily Richmond, they walked arm in arm with me as we tried to save this young woman from addiction and get her into treatment. And I tell you, if any of you have ever done anything like that, it is hard. And they relentlessly, every day, helped me do this, and they did it themselves. I mean, I, I can't even tell you. Um, long story short, um, our life, um, Aaron and I were given temporary custody of Caden. And um, again, I just want to say, like, not only in the serving and bringing items, but our life group prayed every day from the very beginning, in the middle, and at the end when we said goodbye to this little boy. Um, and that, that is why we, we were sustained through this whole thing. So after two years, we had um, two years, and we had court dates and meetings and whatever, and we could not adopt Caden because he was part um, Native American, and the law protects Native American children. Um, so two years, we've had him, and then father comes into the picture, and for the next year, we had him a total of almost three years. The next year, dad came in and had to really work and do a lot of things, um, to be Caden's dad again, and they we transitioned the care from us into Caden's dad, Andrew. And again, our life group, and this is like, they didn't just serve for like a week. They served every day, our life group did. They supported us every day. And then um, there was a year of transition, and then Caden went home with his dad. And um, they moved back to Texas, and this was um, two months before his fourth birthday. And Caden will, will be eight now um, on September the 4th. And again, honestly, I can say the Crossing Church help saved Caden's life. And again, talking about cost, I would just ask you all, was the cost of serving and to the level that we served, was it worth it? Of course it was worth it. It saved his life. And there's just two verses I want to share because I think these undergird our family, but they also really were at the forefront when we planted the Crossing Church years ago. John 13:35 says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And 1 Thessalonians 2.8 says, Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. Andrew, I looked this up in a text message. He had, this is the dad. He said this to me. He's like, Caden is my son, but at his core, he is a Santini. He is loud. 
He likes to be in the middle of everything. He talks to everyone, everywhere, and he loves baseball. And I just want to share one little last thing. This award um, was given to us um, from Child Protective Services, um, and it, it says it's a Shining Star Award, and it's for your outstanding commitment to helping children. But this was a testimony of our church because not only was this going on and they were very well versed in what was going on with Caden, but we also had two other families, the Wiggins and the Kenyans, who adopted two children out of foster care that had been severely abused. So at the same time, they'd have these meetings and literally all all three of our names would come up and they'd be like, they're from this church, the crossing. And they would be like, who are these people? And it became a huge testimony. And that's why that award isn't about Aaron and I. That award is about the Crossing Church. Amen. Thanks. Thanks, Rita. I love that. I love that you brought in that little plaque as well. One day when you see Jesus in glory, as you take your crown off and lay it at his feet, that's one thing, a jewel in that crown. So we've got some other pictures of Caden here um, that we'll just roll through. Uh, there's Nate the Great and little Caden. Keep going. We'll go to the next one. <laughs> he is a Santini. Go for it. Yep. Alongside Tay. Keep going. And there he is. His life was saved. Are there any more? Yep. And there he is now as a What'd you say? Eight? He's going to be eight. Oh my gosh. Praise God. Praise God. And I, I love that story because um, there was this tremendous need. And the life group was the tip of the spear to meet that need. The life group stepped up alongside the Santini family and were used by God to save this little man's life. And I can't wait to see him again one day. But it wasn't just the life group. We rallied around them as an entire church. And I got to know Caden's uh, dad, Andrew, a little bit. We played some golf. Not very good. Uh, but got to share the gospel with him and why we did what we did. And it was, it was awesome. And ladies and gentlemen, that's transcendence. That's made for more. That's greatness. That's not meaningless, mundane, everyday existence that's living for the glory of God. And I love that it would service not only here in the life group, but across the church. And for those who say that Christians don't care about life outside of the room, yeah, right. We have a church who steps up time and time and time again and will continue to. So as I shut it down here this morning, I had a whole nother point, but I'm just going to cut it. Our service together here in the world, it's important. And we're going to talk about that next week and mission. So we have a saying around here, we're ordinary people living ordinary lives, but we live with gospel intentionality. As the gospel grows within us, not just intellectually, it outflows into our daily lives as a church. And we see that not only in little Caden's life, 
but continually. And I'm excited for many more stories and testimonies like that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the joy of your son. That he came, he came to seek and save the lost. He came not for the healthy, but for the sick. He came to give his life to pay that cost. And that was for us. And I pray, Lord, that we would grow and adore that glorious truth. And Lord, there's, there's a real reality that there's much serving that we can be doing. And, and maybe for some of us, Lord, we confess that there is service opportunities that we have said no to selfishly. Or we have said yes to out of the wrong motivations. But God, I thank You for the grace of God. I thank You for Your gentle Spirit towards sinners. And I thank You for the forgiveness that we have in Jesus. And I pray, would You increase our service not only to one another, but our service to those in a world that needs it. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.